Well, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you here with us this morning. I know there's a lot of visitors here with us this morning because we are baptizing some people today. So yes, amen. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you want to uh, release your kids now to Aletheia Junior, you may do so. The teachers will be at the back waiting for them uh, for their time. They'll be back in to witness the baptisms, but you can go ahead and release them now uh, if you want. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to the Gospel of John. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're working through the entire book of John together. Uh, if this is your first time with us or you haven't gotten one yet and you would like one, uh, we have scripture journals that uh, you can take and take notes and bring back with you and follow along with us. Just raise your hand if you would want one, and we'd be happy to have someone come around and give one uh, to you. Uh, but since we've got a bunch of baptisms today, be ready and buckle up. I, I took a shot of steroids before I got up here, so I'm going to be speaking even faster faster than normal this morning to try to get through our texts uh, this morning. But I want to recap for you just to kind of give you an understanding of where we are this morning and where we've been and where we're going over the course of the next several weeks. If you look back at John chapter 2, starting in verse 24, uh, John says this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And one of the things I said as we were uh, studying that particular portion of the Gospel of John together was that over the next several weeks and months, we were going to see Jesus have a number of different interactions with different kinds of people to kind of unveil to us the various conditions of the human heart. Maybe to put that a different way, we were going to see different ways that people were going to respond to Jesus and his ministry. And then we were going to see in light of man's response, how Jesus was going to respond to that. And so we just spent the last several weeks looking at the story of Nicodemus. And we saw that as Jesus interacts with this religious leader uh, from the Sanhedrin, that uh, Nicodemus is a respected teacher of the law in Jewish life, that as Jesus is interacting with him, he says to them that they must be born again. And what, what Nicodemus struggled to understand about that was Jesus's description of what the Messiah's purpose was on earth in light of what Jewish tradition knew to be true about the Messiah. That they couldn't reconcile this idea that God would send the Christ to Israel and not have it be some sort of military or kingly idea where Rome would be shoved out of Israel and that Israel would once again have a king over them that was underneath the authority of God and would lead a certain way. And so Nicodemus really struggles with this. He could not accept it. His, the teaching for him did not add up. He couldn't understand the spiritual things that Jesus was sharing with him. And then we saw last week that John actually ends up elaborating on Jesus's teaching, saying that God's love for his creation and for mankind is what ultimately drove Jesus's mission and the kingdom that he is ushering in. And so here you have, right, in this first interaction, the people that should have understood Jesus and his ministry the most, the religious teachers of Israel, not understanding Jesus and who he is. And at least at this point in time, rejecting him. 
And this is why back in John chapter 2, John says that Jesus did not entrust himself to man. Another way to put that is Jesus is saying, hey, Jesus uh, didn't trust anybody to help him usher in the kingdom of God because he knew mankind would find a way to try to sabotage his mission. And so what we see this morning is a continuation of that, but it's going to be a different interaction. And Jesus isn't going to actually even be present in our story other than just being mentioned about his very, his very presence where they're at. But what we're going to see is an interaction between John the Baptist and his disciples. And what I want you to notice as we look at this is I want you to think more deeply, not just about the things that are being said, but I want you to think about what the agenda of John's disciples is as they ask this question. And we're going to break this down kind of in two sections. We're going to look at John's disciples' agenda in verses 25 through 30. And then we're going to see John once again give a summary of this story that he shares with us to unveil to us the greatness of Jesus' ministry, just like he did in summarizing Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, so that we might understand the power and the majesty and the beauty of the mission of God in Christ. So look at chapter 3, verse 22 with me. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So here, here the Apostle John is just giving us a little bit of information on this transition period of what's going on in this narrative of Jesus' ministry. He's been in Jerusalem. This is where he had met with Nicodemus. As we remember even prior to that, he had cleansed the temple, that there were all sorts of things going on. And now he's moving out into the countryside outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it says that they began ministering out there and baptizing people. Now, if you turn over to John chapter 4, verse 2, one of the things that John is quick to point out to us is that Jesus himself did not baptize anybody, only his disciples did. But it was underneath of his ministry. So much the way John the Baptist's ministry would baptize people, but John's own disciples would baptize them. Jesus himself never baptized anybody, but people were coming out to him, to his ministry, and being baptized. And this ministry must have been occurring for some time time because the crowds began to grow over time. People were leaving Jerusalem. They were coming from surrounding areas of Judea, and they're coming out to the countryside to Jesus's ministry. And meanwhile, in this exact same region and area of the Judean countryside, John the Baptist is also ministering, continuing to do what he had been doing long before Jesus had even shown up and started his public ministry because John has not yet been put in prison. And so there's lots of water nearby. Apparently both ministries could exist, at least at this point in time. You know, it's like John's church is on one side of the river. Jesus's church is on the other side of the river. And this is kind of where we're at. And I want to just point out, and for like timeline's sake, Everything that we're reading right now in John's gospel happens before what we read in the synoptic gospels. When you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, everything that you read about in those gospels is from Jesus's Galilean ministry. That's kind of where it starts. But as we're reading this, this is actually happening before all of that. And we'll see starting actually in chapter four, the start of that ministry. But 
John and Jesus are both baptizing and doing ministry in the countryside of Judea, and a problem is going to arise as John's disciples notice Jesus and his ministry and the influence it begins to have. And starting in verse 25, look at the interaction between John and his disciples. See, it's going to reveal something to us about John's disciples that they don't understand about Jesus Christ and his ministry. And there's a warning kind of laced in what John is sharing here about how quickly and easy it is for us to fall into the same trap that John's disciples do. Look at starting in verse 25 with me. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now that word discussion there in the Greek means inquiry or more more like a a questioning and a debate is going on. So, you know, like, you know, when I say like, hey, we need to have a discussion with my kid, usually it means they're listening and I'm talking, right? When when the, the scripture is using this terminology, it's saying like, hey, there was actually some tension here. There was disagreement on this rite of purification, and they were actually debating with one another over what was supposed to happen. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into full depth over this, but Jews actually did participate in baptism, but they didn't call it that. They called it the rite of purification, and it was uh, allowing them to be made right to go into the temple, or if you were a Gentile, it was something that you observed before you converted to Judaism. And so as this discussion or debate arises, here's probably the best way to think about what's going on here. This Jewish man, whether he's a member of the, the Pharisees or not, is questioning John's disciples and basically saying, look, how does your ministry conform with Jewish teaching? How how is what you guys are doing out here in the countryside fit into the greater scheme of God's word and the way in which we honor, worship, and serve God? Because ultimately, what we need to understand is that the Jewish leaders had rejected John's ministry. They did not view it as acceptable. They did not view it as being from God. But as you'll see throughout the gospels, they were afraid because of the popularity of John's ministry to say that outright. And so what they're doing is they're getting into these debates with John's disciples, trying to pigeonhole them and prove, hey, what you guys are doing isn't actually inside of Jewish theological tradition and is outside the purvey of how God wants us to worship him, serve him, and lead others to come and know him. And if you kind of can gather from what we see inside of John's gospel here, there ends up being no solution As so often when you debate somebody on Facebook or Twitter, or I don't even know if you can debate on TikTok, but whatever it is you guys are on, right? How many times have you guys entered into some sort of debate with somebody and left away having your mind drastically changed or their mind drastically changed? Not a single hand goes up in the room, right? And much in the same way, both sides in this argument already know where they stand on the issue theologically and with God. And so as they're in this debate and discussion with one another, there's no um, just finality or conclusion to where they both even agree to disagree. And it couldn't possibly be so because John had preached very, very specifically, hey, I'm the forerunner to the Messiah, I'm here preparing the way for the coming Messiah. 
And so presumably this debate ends unaddressed, or at least the Apostle John does not share with us what happened. But this interaction leads John the Baptist's disciples to come to John and question him. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, think about this question here. Because they're, they're going to their teacher and they're saying, hey, hey, Rabbi John, do you, do you realize what Jesus is doing and the impact his ministry is having? Do you, do you see what's going on here? This, this guy that you baptized, do you, do you see what's happening here? See, they are simultaneously, as ministry leaders, experiencing a decrease in influence and power and ministry success, both with Jews, because as based upon this discussion and debate, they're being rejected by the Jewish elite and therefore all uh, standard practicing Jewish men and women. But at the same time, many of the same people who were coming out into the countryside in the wilderness to hear John's preaching and teaching, to be called to repentance and to be baptized, they are now no longer coming to John, but instead are going where? To Jesus. And so here you have these men, these disciples, they've given their lives to John, they've given their lives to his ministry, they're rejected by Jewish leadership. They have no place in standard Jewish religious life. They look across the way and they see Jesus' ministry is taking off. And by the very fact that Jesus' ministry is flourishing and growing, that they are losing many of their own followers. And their response to this is, if we're honest, probably one we can relate with. They're upset. They're jealous. They're asking questions like, what happened to our ministry success? What about all the work that we invested for years with you, John? It just seems now to be all being thrown away. Doesn't what we did for you and for God matter? And in, in the midst of that question, which I, I think if all of us in here this morning are honest, we can relate with that feeling. The reason they ask this question is because they are struggling with a particular sin that everyone in this room struggles with, and that's covetousness. I'm going to share with you a two-part definition. I stole this directly from R.C. Sproul, so don't think I'm intelligent or anything like that. It all goes to him. Uh, as I've heard in, in Christian pastoral cir circles, I stole it from R.C. Sproul, who probably st stole it from somebody like Jonathan Edwards or John Bunyan, who probably stole it from Augustine, who probably stole it from the Apostle Paul, who stole it from Jesus. So it all goes back to him at the end of the day. So for those of you guys that are deeply into credit being given, there it is. I have left my bibliography at the end. End, and I am in compliance with university policy. <laughs> but the first part is this, seeing that, that covetousness is, you know, we often define it as like, oh, like, I, I'm kind of jealous. But covetousness is actually far more sinister than that. See, covetousness starts with seeing someone else lifted up and experiencing blessing and desiring their downfall and your gain. 
And if that part in and of itself wasn't enough, the second thing that we declare when we're coveting is that we despise the gift that God has given us in his wisdom. So we're simultaneously, when we are coveting what someone else has or or something that we want, we are simultaneously trying to tear down someone else to build ourselves up and declaring that we know better than God. And practically, here's how this kind of manifests itself. right? It's resentment over someone else's joy and blessing and discontentment in our own. As Scott Saul says, and that oftentimes covetous manifests itself as rejoicing at those who mourn and mourning at those who rejoice. And here's the deal. God's word is not silent on this issue. As a matter of fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Right? If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, God said to Moses, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. To paraphrase Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, God says to Israel, be satisfied with what you have. And I would imagine as those in this room living in the West who are part of American culture and capitalism and society, we really struggle with this. We are inundated every day with ads telling you your life is not good enough, but it will be good enough if you have this. And so we have trained ourselves to be dissatisfied with everything. See, covetousness is a very common sin, but one that is easily glossed over because it's often silent. Covetous manifests itself when we start finding our identity and purpose in created things instead of God and his design for us. Let me give you some examples. You graduate from university, you get a job, you start in your degree field. And one of the things that's been fascinating to me and my you know, 12 years of ministry here in town, Gen Z, I'm about to call you out, sorry. As you graduate from the university and you go get that entry-level job and you just cannot understand why you are not the CEO or the CFO within you know, 16 months. And what happens is, is then you start believing that you need and deserve that raise and that promotion, that you're being treated unfairly and that something's wrong, that you're wiser than the person that's worked for the company 15 years ahead of you. And guys, I mean, here's the reality. It might be true, but it doesn't mean you're called or supposed to be there yet. That for generations People have worked and worked and worked to earn their way up into these positions, gained experience, and with that experience, the wisdom needed to lead properly. I see this in relationships. Some of the saddest things I've seen over the years is people that were friends lose their friendship because they're jealous because another friend enters a relationship and they're jealous that they're not dating somebody. It's like you guys were best friends and all of a sudden you're mad because she's dating him or he's dating her. They're not your property. 
And yet the relationship gets fractured, not because of the dynamics of the friendship, but because of the sin of covetousness. What about material things? Right? Oftentimes people steal or, or get themselves into debt or whatever else, not, not because they just like to steal or they love debt, but because they covet. Guys, if, if my wife didn't help us manage our finances, I would own five Teslas and we would have no money. Right, because we're constantly in need, as God tells us, to check our heart and our motivations. And oftentimes, we run after things that we view as needs but are really wants. And the tragedy is, is that the desire for these things leads us to jealousy, bitterness, and our joy and satisfaction is sucked away. And if you don't believe me, look at John's disciples here. Think about the impact they had had over the years with John doing ministry, preparing the way for the Lord. They've seen God do miraculous things through this ministry. And yet what is their tone, their tenor, and their posture? It's as if God did nothing. Oh yeah, God, we were cool with following you and serving and doing these things when our name was being made great and we were connected with the guy who was the most popular preacher in all of Israel. But when that fame and glory and celebrity starts to fade, in comes bitterness, envy, and jealousy. And, and let me just pause for a minute and say something. God is not pushing back on desires for things. Sometimes even good things. He's correcting and warning against jealousy and discontentment with things we do not have. Right, like, let's, let's go back to the relationship example. If you want to be married and be in a relationship, that is a good and godly thing to desire, but not at the expense of coveting, envying, and trying to tear down others. Working hard and advancing in a career is not a poor thing. It's actually in your very DNA and design as God created men and women to work. But when you begin to worship that thing above the creator, you start needing that above all else, and in comes jealousy, discontent, and covetousness. And John's response to his disciples' discontentment is amazing. Look at it. I love this. Starting in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So here John has spent years with these guys and he's like, all right, let's go back. Let's go back to walking with God 101. He says, my ministry and my purpose here on earth was a gift given to me by God. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything. I'm here for one reason, to do what God asked me to do. Which let me just pause and say to you, everyone in this room, whether you are a follower of God or not, that is in your design. Genesis 1 says you were created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore you were created to worship him and bring him glory. And your very existence does that, but you can experience a greater joy in that by knowing Jesus and walking with him. 
And John corrects his disciples and says, instead of turning and looking at what Jesus and his disciples have and you don't, look instead at what you have been given and be grateful for it. And here's the reality. I, I know this is hard, guys. Right? Our hearts push back on this. Like, look at me. I want to be taller. <laughs> right? My people are from the Shire. Bilbo's my great, 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 great grandfather. Right? Like, I, I get it. Right? I remember as a kid, like, playing sports. And I was just dumb enough to think that I could play football and do these other things with, the, with those of you that are part of the giant class. Right, and I'd always, I would just be so envious and unsatisfied. And over time, right, by the grace of God, right, I've come to embrace what John is saying here about his ministry, that it is a gift given to me by the Lord. My height, believe it or not, my height is a gift. One, I could be shorter. <laughs> You should meet some of my mom's side of the family. I tower over many of them. But there are things that being 5'6 allows me to do that those of you that are 6'3, you can't do. Sorry, you'll never drive a Mini Cooper. You got a five-hour plane ride and coach? <laughs> Sucker. I got plenty of leg room. Right, that God has made us and put us in positions and everything that he gives us is a gift, even if we don't think it is. And here's something I would submit to you. If you find yourself in a situation where you desire something, but you see that God is saying, no, one person is right and it's not you. And I promise you, I've read the Bible enough God is right 100% of the time, 10 out of 10, every day, 265, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's always right. And John says, because I understand that all that I've been given, which included the celebrity of being out here in the wilderness and having thousands of people come out to us and the privilege of baptizing thousands over the course of preparing the way for Jesus's ministry. It's all a gift. And therefore, I'm not going to belabor or be sad over our loss of influence, but I'm going to rejoice and be glad that God allowed me to do this. Now, not only does John encourage his disciples to instead reflect with a posture of gratitude, but he also says that, we sh that they should know this reality theologically. That not only should they be thankful for what God has given them, but they shouldn't be shocked that they're losing influence. Right? He, says, he says, look at verse 28. You yourselves bear witness. That's another way of saying, you know what I'm about to say is true. That I said, I am not the Christ, but I have, sent, I have been sent before him. Right, he says, I told you this would happen. You agreed to follow me. I told you I wasn't the Messiah, that I was preparing the way for him. And now that the Messiah is here, why are you shocked? I told you this. 
It's kind of like I am with Jackie when I've done something stupid and she looks at me like I'm a fool and I'm like, look, I, I told you I'm an idiot before we got married. And God has graciously given you to me to help correct me. But you shouldn't be shocked by what you're seeing. John says to his disciples, you signed up for this. And if you thought that we were going to experience something different, you followed for improper motives and you didn't believe what I told you. Our ministry has been exactly what God called it to be and what he wants it to be. Be content in that. Then he gives this awesome illustration. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, if you don't understand here, right, John is using an illustration to describe what his role is to Jesus's ministry. And he's basically saying, hey, Jesus is the groom and I'm the best man. How many of you guys have ever been a best man in a wedding? A few of you. Okay, let me explain it to you. You have one job to make it that, that weekend about celebrating the bride and the groom. If you at any point during that weekend make it about you or someone else, you have failed. Right? In Jewish tradition, the, the, the best man was actually responsible for organizing and presiding over the wedding, meaning that if the wedding went smoothly, it was a success and you could experience joy. Once the union and the covenant had been entered into, you could see your friends united in marriage and you experience joy. If, they, if the others came and had a good time and celebrating the covenantal vows being exchanged between this man and woman and there was rejoicing, you could experience joy. John is saying to his disciples, Jesus is here to be united with his bride who he's going to die for and raise again for so that they might be forgiven. And I'm the best man This isn't about me. And if we make it about us, we've ruined everything. And I've been a part of a few weddings where some people try to make it about them and not about the wedding. Let me just tell you, it's a hot mess. Everyone's mad at one another. People are kicking people out. It's awkward. John says, I'm just the best man. And we are here to make much of the bridegroom, Jesus, who is here for his bride. And this is not just imagery. God had promised this in his word. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 62, look at verses 4 and 5 with me. He says, you shall no more be termed forsaken. This is God talking to Israel. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young, a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Right? See, what... God is saying there to Isaiah or through Isaiah is that when the Messiah comes and reconciles God's people, it's going to be like a marriage where the bridegroom rejoices over the fact that he's finally united with his bride. 
And John, as the best man, is getting a front row seat to seeing this, supporting this, and celebrating this. And we see what this causes in him with his finishing remarks. Look at verse 29, the last part. He says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, see what John is saying? Right? If anyone had the right to be upset about this loss of influence, right? it would be John. And yet he says, no, no, no. My joy is complete because the wedding time has come and we're here to celebrate the wedding. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, John teaches us two foundational things about life here that we can either accept or reject, but it won't make it any less true. When life is centered on self, there is no joy. But when life is centered on Jesus and his glory and the glorious news of what he's done in the gospel, your joy will be made complete. Even in ministry and religious things, this is true, if not more so. I can tell you as a pastor that it is very, very easy to fall into a trap that thinking I'm far more important to the advancement of the gospel than I really am. And some of you guys might be sitting there and saying, well, I'm not in full-time ministry like, like John was or, or like John's disciples were. And I would say, actually, you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 tells us that you are. Throw that up there for me. All right, everybody remembers verse, verses 16 and 17. Especially verse 17, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We love that. I was like, oh, God's made me something new. Yes. Right, then we forget this next part. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Right? You continue to live and breathe and live for God because you are an ambassador of the gospel if you are a follower of Christ. And ambassadors work for their country 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, representing the interests of their kingdom. And as followers of Jesus, his disciples represent the interests of the kingdom of God, not their own. And this is why covetousness is so dangerous. And so we see here John interact with his disciples, explain to them the beauty of Jesus's ministry and what is really going on and to give them an invitation. Put down your preferences. Put down your wicked desires for influence and power and celebrity. And instead, let's make much of Jesus together. And then John is going to do exactly what he did at the end of the story with Nicodemus, he's going to summarize the reality and the greatness of Jesus' ministry in comparison to John's. Look at verses 31 through 36 with me. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he who gives the Spirit, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John's just, the Apostle John is just reflecting on John the Baptist's words to his disciples, and he compares and contrasts John's ministry and Jesus's ministry, just in case any of us sitting here reading might be questioning whether Jesus's ministry is really greater than John's or not and whether John really should have been correcting his disciples or not, right? He talks about earthly origins versus heavenly origins of these ministries. He says that John's ministry is ultimately from Jewish tradition, paving the way for the Messiah, but Jesus is directly from the Father, and all that he shares is from God. He says that there's an earthly nature to John's ministry, but that in Christ, God in the flesh has been made manifest before us. Here's what he means by that. He says that, John speaks in an earthly way, or to put that another way, John's ministry can only convict of sin and call us to repentance, but that Jesus bears witness to God's love for his people and the reality that God has actually done something about that sin. And with that repentance also comes faith in Christ, and with that faith comes eternal life. Both power for now, but security for eternity. And he says that the scope of these ministries is obvious, that while John's ministry, earthly and helpful, only unveils a need, but that Jesus' ministry in uttering God's word to us gives us the Holy Spirit without measure and imparts eternal life. That if anyone might be wrestling over whether John is more worthy to be followed than Jesus, they need not look any further than to who the two men are. And this is why John himself says he must decrease so that Jesus might increase because what God has done for mankind is greater than anything he can offer, that's John, or we can offer. John is calling us to see Jesus is greater than anything this life has to offer. He might be doing that through comparison of ministries, but what he's ultimately saying is nothing on this earth can compare to knowing and walking with Jesus. See what John's disciples were missing. That Jesus is greater than any earthly leader. That Jesus is far greater than any earthly gift. That Jesus is far greater than any earthly re revelation. And let me submit to you that you need to pause and think about that one for a second. Everyone in this room is a byproduct of the enlightenment. And because of that, we think we're far smarter than we really are. The truth found in Christ is far greater than anything you will learn at that university. Don't walk out here 
dropping all your classes and saying that Pastor Kevin told you to quit school. But I'm telling you to put it in a proper perspective. The truth that is found in Christ is far greater than any wisdom you will find here on earth from man. And as John says here, we can either believe or reject, but God declares this to be true. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And when he says obey the Son, he means believe in him. So here's my question for you. Whose kingdom are you building this morning? I want you to pause and really consider that for a minute. Whose kingdom are you building? Because many of us have walked in here this morning thinking that you're following Jesus faithfully, but you're using him to help build your kingdom instead of laying down your life and helping build his. And I promise you, if you are doing that, you will experience the exact same thing that John's disciples experienced. You are on a one-way road to covetousness because God will not share his glory with you. He did not create the universe for you. He does not design the gravitational pull of the planets, the design that he made in creating mankind and the world around us to fit into your story so that we might worship you and bow down. He created mankind to worship him and to live otherwise is a one-way road to covetousness. And here's what I'll promise you. One of the things that God does is at times in his mercy, he gives us over to ourselves. And he allows us to do things to help us hopefully see the folly of the direction we're heading. He allows us to pursue things that will not ultimately fulfill and build our own kingdom so that we might see the folly and the discontent of it all. And then this text this morning, John gives an invitation to us as his readers into the greatest purpose and meaning of all time. And that is knowing our creator and building his kingdom and worshiping him. As John is saying to his disciples, we aren't just baptizing out here. We aren't just gathering crowds. We are serving, worshiping, and building the kingdom of our creator. And if God sees fit that our ministry is now ready to fade into the sunset so that Jesus and his ministry can accomplish all that God has set to do, then that is a life and a ministry worth living. It is a life worth laying down. Simply respond Repent and believe the gospel. Confess 
your sin and trust that Christ is sufficient. Lay down your life, find eternal life, purpose for now and security for eternity. And then leave here this morning purposed to go and serve and love and repent and preach Jesus to yourself and to those around you. I know that all of us, especially if we're under the age of like 40, our parents told us how special we were. And you are. God cares about you. We saw that last week. But maybe not as special as you think. And the invitation that God gives us is if we lay down our lives for his sake, it's there that we'll truly find life in the first place. Maybe some of us for the first time. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to enter into a time of response. We do this every week at Aletheia Church. All right, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you as I invite the band back up. You may have noticed one of these cards sitting on your seat as you sat down. If you haven't filled one of these out before, I would encourage you to fill one out. If you didn't get one and you need one, just grab somebody that is not using theirs or grab one off of a seat. Right, we've been doing something now for close to five years called our One Campaign. Right, and it's just something simple to remind ourselves that we are here to build the kingdom of God, not our own. And what that means for you, if you are a follower of Jesus in here this morning, you are called to be an ambassador of the message of reconciliation, which means that you should be sharing the good news of Christ with those around you. And so we want to encourage you to write down the name of someone you don't know on this card and then set it in your Bible. You can put it on your uh, mirror in your, in your bathroom to just remind you. But we ask that you would first and foremost commit to praying for this person, that God would give you the strength and the power to love them well, to be there for them, and that God in his grace and mercy would use you or somebody else to draw them to himself and to save them. Guys, we've seen dozens of people, some of you who are even here this morning because you were somebody's one. This isn't supposed to be some sticky campaign or marketing genius that we have. No, it's us wanting to be faithful to what God has said to us in his word. And so write down somebody, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, Maybe you would be bold enough to write down your own name. And then if you were brought here by somebody else, ask them if, if they have your name written down. That God might reveal himself to them. And then here's what we're going to do. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, as the music plays, you can come up as you feel led after you've prayed for your one. If you've repented and confessed of any sin, you can come up and take communion. We take communion every week at Aletheia Church. And communion is our reminder that we are dead to self and our way of doing things, but we are alive to God and what he did for us in Christ. That because God did not hold back anything, even the flesh and blood of his only son, we are forgiven, loved, redeemed, and adopted as children of the creator of the universe. And we take communion joyfully, worshiping and thanking God for what he's done for us. And then we're going to sing.
We're going to sing, Is He Worthy? And I don't care if you can't hold a tune, sing it loud. Right? All the scriptures ask is make a joyful noise to the Lord. It doesn't say make a joyful noise in tune to the Lord. And then we're going to celebrate with baptisms. We're going to see some people declare publicly that Jesus has radically saved and transformed their lives. And we're going to worship him and thank him because this is kingdom building work. And if Aletheia Church ceases to exist in three weeks, here's what I'll promise you. That won't stop the church from going forward. The kingdom of God is advancing. So pause, reflect, ask God to search you. If there's any covetousness in your heart, lay it down and repent and take hold of the promise of forgiveness by God and faith in Christ. Pray for your one, take communion, and let's worship him together.